For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. Today we're going to answer some more common objections to legalizing drugs. I love these episodes. We did this in episodes two and four of the podcast. If you haven't listened to those, check them out. I love these kind of episodes because the potential for reduced harm and healing that's possible with legalization really does not matter to people unless their objections to legalization can be answered. It's kind of like the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. So only people getting their questions answered allows them to actually have all the information that they need to make the decision about what they want to support. So to me, it's always helpful when people have a chance to ask their questions. This is one thing we do at um, discussions that we host is people have a chance to say, you know, what's your biggest lingering question that you have with this? And then we try to go through and, um, and answer some of those. And it's really different for different people. So I love when people are willing to share that because it helps me to know what are people really thinking about? What are the sticking points that they're still uh, finding with this? Because we are trying to paint a picture of a world that they have never lived in before. Right. And that sounds terrifying to a lot of people, even if the ideologically you can kind of get there. It's like, I don't know. I just I want to have all of my questions answered before I could actually go and click the vote button to legalize something or put my name on a ballot, you know, to be part of getting this before the people so that they can vote on it. So in episode two, we addressed whether legalization of drugs is being soft on crime, whether legalization is anti-law enforcement, and whether children will be at a higher risk for drug use when we legalize. Then in episode four, we answered whether or not addiction will increase in a legal market and how we can support drug legalization from a moral standpoint. That's a really big issue. Um, We have more episodes planned on that uh, in the future. Stay tuned for that. Are we letting go of our values and our morality by supporting legalization? So before we dive into today, into today's objections and our answers to them, I wanted to share a quick story of how this podcast impacts people and the kind of impact that you can be part of by sharing these episodes and other content that End It For Good um, publishes. So recently on episode 22, we talked with Kelly Williams about foster care, addiction, and vulnerable families getting caught in the child welfare system. The day that aired, I got this message from a woman who said, I'm not even 15 minutes into the podcast and sobbing. It's all coming back to me. This is huge. People need to hear that addicts love their children. Thank you for doing this. From the depths of my soul, thank you. She later shared this episode on her Facebook page, and this was part of her post. Please take 30 minutes to listen, and while doing so, picture me, the mom you know today, with all the pictures with me and my kids, happy and smiling. But I'm also the mom whose four-year-old daughter was taken because I couldn't get out of bed, let alone look for a job without a shot of drugs. I'm the mom whose newborn baby was ripped from her arms because of marijuana and her meconium, who missed her first Christmas in the three months of court proceedings to get her back. The mom so panic-stricken in the courtroom without representation that couldn't form the words to fight back. I'm the very same mom today I was each of those times. I'm a mom just like you, but I'm also a mom just like in that podcast. So these are really complex issues, how we handle child welfare and drugs. Um, How do we keep children safe when their parents are still struggling with active addiction? What we want to always push towards, though, is what Kelly did so beautifully, which is to humanize the journey 
for people on the other side, people that we think of as not like us, people that we have a hard time connecting with and empathizing with their journeys and their struggles, um, humanizing the journey of moms like this woman who simultaneously deeply loved her children and was also battling a really severe addiction. Yeah. <clears throat> so today we're going to answer four questions. Um the first of them is, if we legalize, we lose the criminal justice leverage to force people to get help. Isn't that bad? Mike? It seems to me the stigma that is in it, which makes you a criminal, makes you least likely to seek help. I mean, you, ha- you have to, in order to get help, you have to go admit to a crime first. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. And even if we say, well, we're not going to count it as a crime, you are still admitting to a crime. Yeah. If you say, I've been using cocaine. You're right. admitting that you have been actively breaking the law or heroin or whatever, you know, in, here in Mississippi, marijuana. Even if you say I've been using it to treat a medical condition, um, we don't care. That's no, still, we do not care. I know, know people trapped in law. that. Yeah, people, I've, I've known people that have got, had t- terrible epilepsy. They have no choice. None of the pharmaceuticals work for them. The only way they can live a functioning life is uh, through use of medical marijuana, and yet they've gotten caught up in the the court system, it mm-hmm. has destroyed their opportunities for work. It has taken their time. It has taken resources they don't have financially. I mean, it's just been a disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I would say, too, when you think about, I think if you can hear the stories of people um, who have tried to force their family members to get help, we want to believe that that works. And every now and then, somebody is able to get and stay sober when they did not want to in the first place. That's very rare. The relapse rate is really high from yeah. treatment. If people are not ready, even those who who desperately want to be sober have a very difficult time often maintaining that the first time around. A lot of times it's, it's a journey into long-term sobriety. Uh, but if people don't, you cannot force somebody to stop using a substance. Right. It does not matter how expensive the treatment you send them to is. It doesn't matter how great that treatment is. If they don't want to stop using and even if they do they can they can struggle to stop using but forcing somebody into treatment um, is ending up with what we have now which is insurance companies don't want to pay for treatment anymore they've been paying over and over again for these people to be cycled yeah. into huh. into yeah. into treatment uh, when maybe they're not ready to get treatment yet and we have to sit with the fact that the vast majority of people who are using drugs do not want to stop yet and it doesn't matter the length of time either. You hear stories all the time, and people that have gone in and out of prisons will tell you, yes, I was in prison for a year. Didn't use during that whole year. The day they get out, they start using again. So it's cleared from their system, you know, whatever the science is of something being stored in your fat cells. It takes a long time to clear out. It doesn't matter. These people, as soon as they get out of that traumatic situation, the first thing they do is go back to using. Right. So not all of them, but some of them are. And the problem is um, that if you have been in an abstinent environment and you use the same amount of substance that oh, you yeah. used before, you're very likely to die. Right. Because your body's tolerance and body chemistry has totally changed from being abstinent from that substance. So we are forcing people into treatment, and many treatment facilities still require complete abstinence. They don't allow medication-assisted treatment, something we're big advocates for, uh, allowing people to do that. And then if they come out and relapse, they are more likely to die than if they had never gone into treatment in the first place. Now, that's tough. People do not want to hear that. Yeah. And they also don't want to hear that about jail. If you, if you take somebody to jail, they say, well, at least I know they're alive. 
At least I know they're not using. Well, there's drugs all through jail, yeah, so you don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you don't know that they're not using. Uh, if they are, it's because they don't want to, not because they don't have an opportunity to. Um, but if you go to jail and you are forcibly detoxed, which happens, I've heard. I have not seen a study on this. I've heard through the grapevine that solitary confinement is sometimes used as a forcible detox for oh my people. Gosh. Um, and so you could say, well, that's just hearsay. Well, if you have to, you have to begin to believe a little bit of hearsay. If there's, you know, who wants to study that? <laughs> nobody right. wants to study that, and nobody wants to, you know, admit that. And for a lot of people, if you believe kind of the old story about addiction, that if you can just get them clean of the criminal of the uh, chemicals, that then they will be cured of the addiction. Um, you you really can justify that you're helping somebody by by detoxing them. Um, and I can see how somebody would say, you know, this this is awful. The detox is terrible, but we're we're helping them in the long run. And so, it's you know, this is just part of what we have to do for them. But if you look at the statistics of people coming out of prison, uh, they are far more likely to die of uh, an overdose than if they had never gone in in the first place. So forced jail and forced treatment both create a potential, a higher potential for death for somebody who comes out of either of those environments um, with, if they relapse. And so uh, to me, I'm not against people going to treatment. I'm not against abstinence-only treatment if they want to do that. Um, But forcing people into abstinence and then putting them back into an environment where even if they knew it was in the substance, there's a higher potential for them to overdose just because they don't know what their body can handle anymore. Um, But we are also putting them back on the street with adulterated substances where not only has their body chemistry changed, but now the substances, they still don't know what's in them. And it's just this creation of this disaster. So uh, forcible help to me, I just think, we don't do this with any other kinds of medical uh, interventions. You, you can't, or spiritual, you can't force somebody to become a Christian. Right. You can't force them to take their diabetes medicine. You can't force them to go get help for depression. You can't, it is, it, it's kind of just a, it's such a strange way to approach somebody's choices and somebody's, the problems that are in their life to try to just strong arm them into yeah. fixing them. Um, when we know that unless they deeply want that themselves, it doesn't matter what we do. It's not going to affect the change. So we should be doing everything we can to actually help them want to affect the change. How could we do that? Well, we could stop stigmatizing them. We could stop forcing them into using in the dark and uh, with all of this shame and all of this um, losing their friends. You know, if you're using drugs, chances are you have lost friends from overdoses. It's just this such a traumatic uh, environment. So the second one, this comes up also um, regularly at discussions where people say, well, I know somebody whose life has been, they went to jail and it became this experience where their life was transformed. And now they came back and they're doing all of this amazing stuff. And, you know, jail is, is the agent of change if people will allow it to be. And so, you know, forcing them into that environment is okay because we're giving them a chance to change. If they don't want to change, well, they don't get to, you know, yeah. they're not going to change. But we're giving them a chance to, and I've read news stories or I know somebody or I heard somebody give their testimony that jail was this wake-up call for them. So that's true. That does happen for some people. Sure. So what do we do with that? Well, I mean, <laughs> you would think with the number of people who've been incarcerated in the jail war the last 50 years 
that we certainly would have gotten rid of an awful lot of addiction in this country if that was the successful Mm -hmm. way to do it. Mm -hmm. It just does not point to putting a dent in the problem. Right. And actually creates more of the problem because we do know through research that trauma is an exacerbator of addiction. And now we're cycling them through really traumatic jail experiences. Um, I, I think, too, people that have had that kind of awakening moment in jail maybe have the most difficult time uh, supporting ending it, um, which uh, to which me, this is a really sad thing. Yeah, yeah, like it worked for me. Um, and so, you know, if other, pe- if other people have the opportunity, they need to just use the opportunity. Um, and I was able to use the opportunity. And, and to me, that is uh, that's a very, very narrow way of understanding how people change and how and how to get the most people an opportunity to change. Um, you know, we could we could start cycling people through the criminal justice system for all societal harms. Yeah, we could say, right. you know, anything can't that we Uncle deem Sal- wrong. Can't you know? get Aunt Sally to quit smoking, but I bet right. you if we lock her up for a year, right. we could save her life. Right. So, yeah. which is probably true. We yeah. could probably do, for some people, that would be enough to make them stop. The vast majority of them would just give them a criminal record, and they're still going to be left with the smoking addiction that they had before. Well, you know, I mean, uh, human beings respond to things differently. You will hear some people can be at the pinnacle of their career, and something happens, their business goes bust, they get fired or whatever, and it's catastrophic at the time. But you might talk to them five or ten years later, and they'll say, getting fired from that great position was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. people can respond to terrible, terrible things. We don't go around firing people saying, I think that they really need a change. And if we fire them now, they'll know in a few years that this was the greatest thing for them. It's just, you know, sometimes going to jail, people are able to make something positive of that. And God love them. That's fantastic. You know, it's glad it's a success. But it's not, uh, it shouldn't be a strategy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that desire to prescribe one thing for everybody, for everybody. Yeah. it just is the more that I think about it, the more I realize that's how I operated for most of my oh, life. Yeah, I still too. fight that. I fight that by saying, you know, so we've homeschooled for the last couple of years. We just put our kids in regular school this fall. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the thought in me of like, I'm realizing all these things that are kind of wrapped up in homeschooling for me. Like, I loved it, but I also kind of thought it was just the best thing for my kids. And now we're doing a different thing, and I'm realizing, oh, now I have to – now maybe that wasn't the prescription for my family. Maybe yeah. different things in different seasons. Right. Maybe different things for different kids. Maybe different things for different families. <laughs> yeah. You know, it does not have to be that we have to say, this is the way, and that's true for all people, all time, everywhere. Uh, and that is, we just seem to be so hung up on wanting to find the thing that is true for all people, all time, everywhere, and then forcing it on people. Um, and it just doesn't work. It leaves, you know, the firing thing is a great example because you do hear great stories of sure. people who are like, you know, man, I went through this awful time at my job, you know, or, whatever, or I love the job and I got fired, but now I've got this other thing, you know. Yeah. And we don't go around saying, the prescription to love your work is to be fired from yeah, your current right. job. When you, think you're, when you think you're really nailing it, we're going to take you take the rug out from right. underneath you, and right. then we think you'll be okay. We yeah. think you'll be better. Because look at this guy oh, over here. He yes. did it. Yeah. Yeah. So we can, we can see there, oh, gosh, no, people's lives are very unique. And I think we need to see that with the drugs, too. And we have so dehumanized people that use drugs or struggle with addiction that we have failed to see all the nuance of their own lives. And I think that is 
one of the greatest harms of criminalizing drug use has been the dehumanization of people uh, that are using drugs, which allows us then to do things to them we would never do to people who we didn't have that stigma. Yeah, and I can't think of a single human condition that is more um, effectively addressed through really um now there's some level of tough love but in tough love there is love the the prison system isn't about love it's not Mm -hmm. about caring it is about stringent rule following incarceration and punishment and you know so to think that that's the atmosphere that's going to affect the most people but in anything else in life we want somebody who cares about us to guide us through things Mm -hmm. we don't want people pounding on us to make us change behavior i don't think that works i mean you've got kids i've got kids you know there's times you got to get tough with them and tell them just give them a big fat no but you're also it's it's through love that you Mm -hmm. do that the the prison system does not provide love yeah yeah we know that if we instituted the prison-type environment at home, our kids would have unbelievably awful outcomes. I mean, this is just obvious to us, but we continue to do it. And I think that's, again, that's the dehumanization of other people to say it works for that kind of person. It certainly wouldn't work for me and my family, but the kind of people that would do drugs are people that need that sort of thing. And I just think that's really wrong. Yeah. So um, one of the last things that, that... Uh, this is the last one that we're going to address, this objection, is that a lot of people who come to discussions, they might say, so we go around the room and say, you know, kind of what's your one response to the presentation that I do, which is kind of the um, the content from the uh, TEDx talk that I gave. And they say, well, I think decriminalization is is the, you know, the way to go. I, we don't need to legalize. We just need to stop putting people in jail. Um, and that often can come from people who have, who are in recovery um, maybe that can see, or people with family members. Um, so, Mike, what's your thoughts on just decriminalizing, not going all the way on legalizing? It just doesn't go for you. You still leave that element of, um, of uh, you know, the product is uh, unregulated. It's unknown. There's no uh, reputable money put behind it to, you know, to make it, um, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to say corporate, but more... Um, uh, more mainstream, you still end up with drug gangs. You're still going to have underworld competition for things and the violence that comes with that. Um, you know, you, you can focus on the the user. The decriminalization is generally of the user, but that doesn't mean that they're going to let people roll down the highway with bales of marijuana in the back of a pickup truck. You know, they'll right, still, right, right. Yeah. they will still be cracking down on that, which still, that's what builds the criminal element. Right. Yeah, I, so I think, to me, I think one of the principles that is happening when people can kind of get to decriminalization but not legalization in, in where we live is that we feel the weight of criminalizing users more than we feel the weight of the criminal market. So if we lived in a city in Mexico that's being devastated by violence from cartels, my guess is we would actually have that flip-flop. Yeah, we would right. say, legalize the market because it's destroying our community. But maybe I have nobody that's actually using drugs. Who cares about whether or not we keep locking up people who are using them? What's, yeah. what, what impacts my life is what I want fixed. And so I think that's – I always want to be pushing people to look past what directly impacts their own life to say what impacts other people's lives too. Because let's say decriminalization could help your family member. But if we're really going to look at it holistically and say – Okay, but what about not just helping your family member? What about helping those kids that are growing up in 
you know, the inner city where it's racked by gang violence that's driven by drug prohibition. Right. Like how how can we how can we say they have to keep those harms, but we want to stop the harms that are actually impacting our family? Um, I think we need to go further and say, how can we reduce the harms to everybody, not just me and my family, not just to the community that I am a part of, uh, but to everybody that's being affected by this and continue to push forward on that and and go further to say, we need to also be looking at what's happening to our neighbors, not just to us. Yeah. And, you know, uh, decriminalization in, in today's climate, it would do nothing for the fentanyl problem that we right. have right mm-hmm. now because you still are criminalizing the manufacture and distribution, which mm-hmm. means they're still going to have to smuggle in small packets. They're still going to use more potent stuff and you're still going to have you're just going to you know you're just going to be able to die from heroin without risk of arrest is essentially yeah. what it is but it's still going to be killing people yeah so uh, another thing that legalizing does is it allows the potential for harm to be absorbed by the person who makes the choice to use the substance instead of harming someone else in an attempt to keep someone from harming themselves stick with me on this because it's yeah. important so this point was brought up at a recent in-person discussion, and I had, really had not thought about it, um, certainly not that clearly before, but it was a great point uh, made. And it was brought up to make the point that just decriminalizing use is not going far enough because the suffering that the underground market is causing to people who would otherwise be uninvolved is horrific and misplaced. So let me give you an example of how this works. So drug prohibition is an attempt to keep me from using one of the prohibited substances. That's the whole nine yards of drug prohibition is an attempt to keep me and you from using a substance. But because of that effort to force me not to use by criminalizing the substance, one of the outcomes is that we've transferred the market to this violent underground. So now there's a woman just like me being murdered in Central America because the cartels own the underground market and they operate through terror and violence. And when she refuses to work for them, they kill her. This kind of the, you know, do what we say or you die happens all the time. There's also a woman just like me living in maybe Jackson, Mississippi, with gang activity over drug sales and unsafe streets for her kids to play in. And she is enduring that harm because we're trying to keep me from making the choice to use this substance. So it's kind of all of this harm going to people, to other people, in an attempt to, to force me not to make a personal choice over this substance. Because there's a very real cost to other people to try to make that attempt to force me not to use the substance. So um, someone at a recent discussion also brought up how drug prohibition is contributing to our immigration crisis by enabling the cartels to just wreak havoc in Central and South American countries. And people are fleeing the violence and that government corruption because of how the cartels bribe officials. Um, And there are very real costs to prohibition, but many of them fall on people who aren't otherwise involved in my decision to use a substance. So um, the the point was legalization transfers the responsibility and the potential for harm closer to the person who's actually making the choice instead yeah. of, and this is probably like right up your alley because you're libertarian. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, I thought it was a great point. Um, so in a legal market, I can choose to use. And if I choose to use the potential for harm from my choice rests with me. Uh, We're no longer causing all of these other people's lives to be destroyed just to attempt to keep me from making the substance. And so it's more appropriate that the harm fall on me for my choice rather than we're going to try to keep you from making the choice and we're going to let all these other people be killed or have their lives destroyed in an attempt to force you not to have bad consequences in your own life from your, you know, from your choice. Right. And in a, in a, 
kind of a, a mirror of that. If you look at go to the Mexico example, so there's people living in abject fear in Mexico. They're actually fleeing, trying to flee Mexico to the safety of the United States because of the cartels. We hear about the murders. We hear about the corruption of the politicians, the police, and even the military that has been corrupted by the cartels. They're so powerful down there. As opposed to if you're living in a community with, uh, and I keep using this example, like Jose Cuervo, instead of people being fearing for their life, Jose Cuervo provides them with a good-paying job in Mexico. It improves the value of their life because there is this legal substance made in Mexico meant to alter the the consciousness or alter the, uh, the brain of an American somewhere as that bottle of tequila comes up north. Jose Cuervo is a benefit to the Mexican people as an employer with a reputable business and those kinds of things. An intoxicant that's going to be shipped north where the cartels wreck their societies. Now, they do provide some jobs to some of their people, very short-lived jobs because you could be murdered on that job. But, you know, they, they destroy communities. I mean, that's a very easy thing for me to look at and say, well, this the Jose Cuervo, the tequila model, is the model that helps people in Mexico and endangers nobody but, like you say, the end user. The end user can abuse tequila, drink, or and drive, or do whatever. The uh, the cartel in the same area, the same country, Mexico, has got harms all the way up and down the chain, including the end user, starting with the manufacturer and the distributor and the smugglers and the citizens around it caught in the crossfire. Right. I mean, we still have end user potential for harm, yeah. but we have all this other potential, like right. guaranteed harm right. all along the way. So last objection, some people just feel like, I just think we've got it about right. Like, surely we've been trying to work on this drug thing, <laughs> and I, I just think we've got it about right. I think we've gone as far as we need to on reforms. We've done some criminal justice reform. We've helped people get their driver's licenses back, and I think we've gone far enough. What would you say? That is somebody living in an area that is completely untouched by this and a family that's untouched by these kinds of things. I mean— that's almost surprising that anybody would be happy with the status quo right now. You would really have to. It's a to, real comment. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I know that's kind of like you know when you see uh, you see polls and they say Congress has only got a twelve percent approval rating. My first question is, who are the twelve percent that think they're doing a good job? I mean, that would be my thinking of anybody who thinks, oh, this is working out great. You know, I mean, because yeah. it, and. and and the 12 percent who have an approval of Congress are probably just really not paying attention or they benefit from the system somehow. Mm-hmm. So they're OK with everything going. The person who says, I think we've done enough, is probably somebody that has just really not looked and considered any of the real harm that's happening mm-hmm. to people every single day. They have to really be kind of be disengaged with it. Otherwise, I can't see how you could just say, mm-hmm. oh, it looks good to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's just too much harm. Whether or not you agree with what we think that it should right. be legalized, there's just too much harm to say we've gone far enough in in some way. I mean, there's so much harm. We, we clearly are doing something wrong. We think we think legalization is the path forward out of that. Yeah, um, but and that's and this is the point of this podcast. And I think why you're such a good messenger of this. You're not mad at anybody who doesn't think your idea is yeah. the best. And if they've got another idea, I mean, there may be a great idea that comes by tomorrow that you and I haven't considered. That's not what we think right now that would work. And we go, oh my gosh, okay, there was yeah, something out there. That. But it's it's the search for making this better that's really important right now and not just accepting that this is what it is. And unfortunately, we've been steeped in this war on drugs now for so many decades. We're, th- you know, three, four generations into this. People don't know any different way. And so yeah. people aren't questioning it because it just is what it is. Yeah. Um, whereas prohibition with alcohol was so short-lived that people, 
as they saw it unwind, they remembered a time before the alcohol prohibition. They remembered a time before Al Capone and mm-hmm. violent gangs. They remember, you know, yeah. we've we've lost that memory. And so now we just think, well, this is just the way it is. It's got to be this way. It always has been. That's a great comment. So the last discussion that I hosted just last week, the first person who came in the door was an older gentleman. And the first words out of his mouth were, I've been waiting 50 years for somebody to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And so, because he can remember, right. he was alive before we launched this war on drugs. He said, I, "The minute I heard about it, I knew it was going to be an absolute disaster." Yeah, and it has been a disaster for fifty years. And finally, we're talking about the fact of what we can see and what we know is true, and we need to end it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, if you have a lingering question or two about ending our criminal approach to drugs and legalizing them, send those questions to us at podcast at enditforgood dot com. We won't share your name uh, unless you want us to. But getting your questions is how we know what people are wondering, so we can actually address those issues. Um, Send us your questions. And join us next time as we continue the journey to end our criminal approach to drugs for good. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.